Welcome to Borderlines, a podcast about Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. Happy 2023. This episode, Deanna and I are joined by Tamara Mosher Kutzer, the founder and principal lawyer of Lighthouse Immigration Law Professional Corporation. Now, if you are on Twitter, you should definitely be following Tamara, as she is probably probably has the most comprehensive feed about immigration law updates out there. Tamara's Twitter is at ttrrmk. And today we are discussing Canadian immigration law in 2022. We provide an overview of the year past, discuss our favorite and least favorite developments in Canadian immigration law, and talk about our favorite federal court of uh, Canada decision decisions. We also make predictions for 2023, including what people should be watching for, what we think may happen that others might not be talking about or expecting, what will happen with the self-employed class and the caregiver programs? Will there be a parental sponsorship lottery this year? We also offer our thoughts to IRCC on how to resolve PR card delays. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. You're probably more up to date on what's going on in Canadian immigration at like any given moment than anyone else I know, just judging from Twitter. Like I often tell people, if you're going to follow one account, follow Tamara because she retweets everything that is of note. I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I have that that question too. I think early days of Twitter, I had I had my my son was like a newborn in uh. my very my like the very early days of me being insane, and so I was up all night. Are you yeah. going to pay for Twitter Blue? <laughs> no, <laughs> the... but it is it is quite something to stay on top of the deluge of information and news in immigration. I think most practitioners, I know for me, I stick with the information that's relevant to my area of practice. To broad base it like that is really quite a feat. <laughs> oh, especially nice. all the stories too about individual families, like to even keep on top of that, like every deportation story every provincial nominee program update it's very impressive <laughs> thanks it's uh but i i think that like practicing in this area you kind of have to if if you really want to understand everything that's going on and i i get questions like yesterday somebody sent me a question like oh and my my son wants a work permit he's in high school and i was i was auto set to go no that's not a possibility and then i was like oh wait they announced it's coming in january maybe he's mm-hmm. going to qualify for sure. Like I, I only know that because I read everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that this is a good segue into the first question that we wanted to ask, which is how would you summarize 2022 for Canadian immigration? And I think this sort of like, for me anyways, this sort of frenzied approach to policymaking. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, this is, this pretty much characterizes how it's gone that it's not the same way where it's like there's six programs and you look at them and you figure out like, you know, what options are available, these sort of these different niche opportunities that are arising for people and, you know, just having to keep tabs on, you know, I just in the conversation in my office, does anybody know if this is still going? Does this still exist? Is that still a thing? You know, like, and just trying to keep updated on what things exist, what things are coming down the pipeline, just the kind of information, um, 
the, the information mishmash that we're kind of dealing with and that it doesn't feel like it's streamlined. It's not like there's one clear source of information. Um, the idea that I remember years ago when I was on CBA of them talking about wanting to have a much more user-friendly self-help style immigration system, that is exactly the opposite of what we've ended up with here in 2023, you know? So um, I don't know uh, if, if that tallies with what the two of you have have felt about um, where we stand at this moment. There's something to be said about that. Like it almost is like you're going to a restaurant and there's no menus and they don't really tell you what the food is that they're serving a lot of the times. And you kind of just have to tell the waiter, do you have this? No. Do you have this? No. But IRCC doesn't have a great way to say, oh, you're an out-of-status construction worker in Toronto, or, yeah. <laughs> oh, you want to start a business in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Totally. I don't um, even think you ask the waiter. I think you walk around the restaurant and ask <laughs> the other patrons, like, have you tried this? Do you know what this, have you read every single story from every single person who has dined before in any restaurant? <laughs> yeah. And what are they doing? <laughs> And like, I see you're eating this. Is that still available? Oh, I just missed it. You're out. Did it make you sick? Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. the waiter told us it's the last one. Did and you that table got something through a lottery. It? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. The waiting time too. Like, did you order that in 2019 or? Yeah, my yeah. son ordered a, it's like the caregiver program. My son ordered a kid's meal, but he's a teenager now. I'm not sure if we still need it. That's right. A hundred percent. That's right. Yeah. And besides, they found him inadmissible for misrepresentation because he didn't tell them that he had grown up and no longer requires that care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this analogy six could go children. far. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, we, it has a lot of legs here. So um, I think we're all aligned that that is the summary of 2003 in the immigration world. Well, 2022, how would you summarize it? Like with everything that uh, you saw, Tamara, did you... Are there certain themes that you noticed in 2022, or if you had to summarize the year for someone, if there's a few ideas that you noticed? Oh, I I would summarize it as a gong show. I, <laughs> you know, 2022 was better than, in my opinion, 2020 and 2021. Things calmed down because we didn't have the weekly or biweekly OICs yeah. um, to contend with and all the changing border rules. So that was really nice. But we had so many public policies um, and expiring public policies. It was really, really hard to keep track of. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that we're going to see a little bit um, less kind of fly by the seat of your pants policies in, in 2023. I'm hoping that it will be kind of more thought out, but we'll see what the McKinsey uh, Institute input has uh yeah, it was just, uh, it's funny that you like mentioned that because as you were saying more thought out, I was thinking the same comment, um, which is, so for those who don't know, there've been reports in the media that McKinsey, which is a global consulting firm, um, is heavily involved with something at IRCC policy development. It's not really clear what or to what extent they're involved in, but uh, there were at least some bureaucrats who went to the media saying that McKinsey is conflicting in some ways with what at least these individuals, what the bureaucracy want. The way I've kind of like summarized how I feel the situation is now is that it feels like things are 
kind of back to normal for say 80 to 85% of applicants, but 5% and say 10% get slow or poor service, 5% seem to just get no service and nothing, nothing's happening on say caregivers, the trickle of processing, self-employed class, nothing's moving, startup visas, nothing moving. Anything that feels complicated, it's like the department in a rush to get their targets. Anything that is complicated just goes into an abyss. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I would add to that is that on the enforcement side, it's very much the opposite, where uh, there seems to be a a huge um, enforcement push, uh, very... Uh, very little in the way of um, willingness to negotiate for even temporary stays of removal. Um, there's a very strong push to just execute removals. There's a very strong push on ex um, vacation and cessation proceedings, mm -hmm. um, a very strong mandate, a very well-resourced department. Um, and so where you're seeing very low uh, resourcing and some of the other standard processing kind of streams, uh, that's not what we're seeing at all in the enforcement side. So. Uh, you know, again, this is this sort of colors the picture of of how the department is allocating its resources uh, in the year, and we've seen that kind of escalating throughout 2022. So, in a way, um, I echo what you're both saying is that 2022 was better in the sense that rather than having nothing happen for the two prior years, uh, at least some things were being processed. But on the enforcement side of things, to go from nothing to all of a sudden like a big crush of like, just get out without any recognition of some of the things that occurred in the meantime, I think has been really challenging people that have like since had children and you know married Canadians and all of that sort of thing. So um, just to kind of add that there. And I think like there was, there's also seems to be a trend um, towards IRCC not wanting to deal with people on an individual basis. Oh so not goodness. being able to contact program managers, the web form does nothing. So there's nothing you can really do to deal with your matter other than say, well, I'm sorry, you've kind of gone into a black hole and we've contacted everybody, but there's nothing that can be done. Well, in yeah. 2022 is the year, not where Chinook started to be used, but I think where increased knowledge about Chinook and its consequences, that being that IRCC doesn't even process applications individually and instead in TRVs and study permits, bulk processes them, um, really drives your point home. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, uh, you know, just the the depersonalization of the immigration process is something that we had certainly seen beginning uh, well before this time period, but it really just keeps advancing uh, at, to my view, alarming rates. Uh, and um, yeah, just to, to confirm. Yeah, so I think we've presented and done a good summary of our negative trends for 2022. Yeah. What about uh, favorite development um, in Canadian immigration law this past year? Oh, favorite developments. Um, well, I like that they amended IRPA or the regs finally regarding medical in inadmissibility. That's great. That was a great. That was a great change. We've we already had it with the policy, but it's nice that it's you know in print. Um, 
I like the the foilless visas for CUAET. And if we could see an expansion of that um, to, to other TRV holders, that would be amazing. Uh, because that that would cut down on a lot of the processing time and uh, a lot of the hands-on work that they actually have to do with accepting and actually mailing passports. So I, yeah, good call. Yeah, I agree with all that for sure. Um, another one that is sort of I hadn't thought of, um, but now that you mention what you have, uh, the way that they went to the online landing platform, um, definitely. Again, I think that there still is a lot of room for improvement in terms of the delay between the online landing and the hard landing um, so that people are still stuck. Uh, you know, I think that they've realized that some of these things they've hung on to for such a long period of time, needing to lay eyes on people, that some of those hangups were just hangups because now they are doing it, but they're not doing it efficiently. So, uh, but I think that the idea um, of being able to do that as an online process was definitely an improvement. Yeah, I had moving like the moving more applications to the new electronic portals. I happen to really like the electronic portals. I know there's concern over it being mandatory. Um, and there being think, seven of them or however many there are. Yeah, I'm thinking mainly the main like for all non-express entry permanent residence applications going through that one portal. I really like it. But um, I think actually I'm going to switch it to the the Ukraine emergency travel authorization. Uh, that's uh, I hadn't thought of that one. And it is it was a very impressive feat uh, with hopefully mm -hmm. many long term but they follow up on it in the future in terms of, you know, as you were saying that there's no need to send your passports in how quick it was, at least initially, um, that there was a reduced, that there was just one long form. If you were applying through the portal instead of uh, a lawyer or consultants, third party portal. Um, hmm. And I also liked, I don't know, there's, we've talked about this before on the podcast, how there seems to be different ways of, dealing with an influx of refugees. And we've also commented, unfortunately, that it seems to vary a little bit based on skin color or politics, but how there's, you know, this traditional stream of, you know, resettling refugees from abroad through private sponsorship or government assisted like the Syrians or the Hong Kong approach, which was certain people could apply for open work permits on entry. So now the Ukrainian approach, which has been basically to allow people to just come here as visitors first, get three-year open work permits. And then the department seems to have a bit of, we'll, we'll punt the final question of what the long-term uh, pathway will be down the road, but that's a, that's a future, future minister problem. So <laughs> like, you know, that, but I do like the approach of like, and I wish there'd be a little bit more consistency because, you know, people have had those concerns like why were, why was it possible for Ukrainians to do this and not Afghans or Ethiopians? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why 40,000 Afghans and an unlimited in theory number of Ukrainians? But yeah. uh, I do think overall that was my, my, that'll have to be my favorite development. For sure. I think for me, mine is a is a local development. I don't think that I could say that this exists across the country, but I I have to give a shout out for the the initiatives at the at the RPD 
uh, Western region to develop what I would say is a growingly trauma-informed practice. And I would say that um, the RPD really has has made a significant turn in terms of training of officers, in terms of the level of understanding of how a trauma, a traumatized claimant is going to react in a hearing room uh, that has really changed the climate of the hearing uh, in my experience, where there's a recognition that all of the things that we have talked about on the podcast repeatedly about things like credibility findings, that they make no sense in the context of a trauma-informed practice, that to, in to insist that somebody who's telling the story of torture and um, flight risk and all of that sort of thing, that to expect utter consistency in their telling of a narrative, that those things do not make sense together. And I feel like that message is finally starting to get through. Um, I understand from speaking to the assistant deputy chair with the RPD here in Western region, that they actually had somebody come in and talk about the neuropsychology of oh, wow. trauma and that the hearings officers were really like taken aback. They were, it really helped to reset their understanding of what to expect from a claimant describing their narrative. Um, and I've seen it in the hearings rooms. And so I feel like to me, that's an issue that I feel like for many years, uh, council representing claimants at the Refugee Protection Division has been banging their head against because how do you prep somebody to be something other than what their brain chemistry allows them to be? Um, so to me, if that could become something that's training implemented countrywide and not just at the RPD, but also at the bro at the backlog back, backlog production office, the, the officers processing humanitarian and compassionate applications among members of the federal court. Like I think that um that this is something that needs to be implemented on a broader scale because they've done a fantastic job of of getting that learning through. So like that's absolutely amazing. And I have I'm, I'm so glad to hear that this is happening. It's, oh, I'm so astonished and so impressed too. But like I, so I had jotted down some notes uh, based on what uh, Steve had said you guys wanted to talk about today. And then I'm thinking like, my stuff is really practical. I, it's not like awesome. Yeah. <laughs> in, in kind of this, uh, this major um, kind of humanitarian way and with like, Glo like global applications, not just um, in terms of immigration, but I was really happy that the LMIAs um, are, have been uh, now can now support like three-year or two-year work permits mm -hmm. because on a practical level that reduces the backlog from IRCC and also um, means that applicants don't have to keep applying every two years and, and employers don't have to keep applying. So like on a practical level, that's amazing. And for the same thing, the medical validity being that medicals are val valid for five years for some people. Again, amazing because it's foolish. Like this, this need for people to keep reapplying and keep doing the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like these policies are nonsense and are just not based on common sense. Yeah, so th these sure. are some common sense changes um, that IRCC implemented this year or ESDC implemented this year, which I was happy yeah, to see. For sure. And I mean, we have to, I mean, part of the problem here is that the LMIA process is truly Kafka-esque. And so the idea of delaying the encounter with that process for a further year really does improve 
recruitment, retention of people. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of making it a longer period of time before somebody has to embark on that process again is a big yay. It's going to be interesting on the LMIA front um, because, you know, the story of 2022 was labor shortages post-COVID. I don't, there's predictions at least that the story of 2023 is going to be layoffs and recession. So it'll be interesting to see sort of if that has implications, um, if that does pan out, and if that has implications for the LMIA program. Because I think we were all practicing the last time the program was in the news in a big negative way back in 2014, and all the changes that that resulted in. So it'll be interesting in, uh, you know, in 2023, if there's a similar reaction. Can I just say, though, that the, the LMIA process um, the fact that it is torturously, punishingly difficult to my, in my mind, that doesn't achieve the goal of protecting the Canadian labor market better. It's not a smart process. It's just a blunt force object of like standing as a barrier. So the idea of creating a scalable a meaningful, usable program as opposed to one that is just so oppressive. Uh, to me, I think there that's still something that needs to be, that something needs to fill that space that is like uh, something that meaningfully assesses the labor market need, but isn't this, as I said, Kafka-esque process where like, unless you want to kill yourself, if you don't get that worker, you will decide that you must go through this process. You know, it shouldn't, that's not the deterrent value of, that That shouldn't be the deterrent value that the red tape is so extreme that that's what's going to pe- keep people out of that program. Although I have to, like, I agree entirely, but I have to say that though the process hasn't changed and though the process remains as awful as it's been since uh, 2014, at the end of 2022, I have to say the officers, at least the officers out east, seem to be a lot more pleasant and the approach to assessing LMIAs seems to be less of this um kind of combative we don't believe you you're trying to take away jobs from canadians and more of a yeah we see there are labor market shortages we understand you probably do actually need this person and you didn't go through this crazy process and pay all this money um for fun Mm. yeah it's made me wonder if just people in atlantic canada are happier like i've often joked about that (laughs) being like i wonder like are they just they always seem so cheerful on the like when they're interacting with clients compared to LMIA offices elsewhere. Although the global talent stream, one of the weird like stories about COVID to me was how global yeah the global talent, talent stream was like the one program that didn't seem to be impacted at all by COVID. It just kept chugging along when everyone else uh, started to experiencing delays. I don't think they ever like had to extend. Oh, if anything they, they went did. maybe An ten business days, days to eleven. Yeah, like yeah to twelve. That's it's the global talent stream you know was and they're expanding it so um so i we've touched a bit on favorite we kind of did our trends which may have had least favorite developments were there any other developments that you didn't like so i have to oh diana's waving her hand okay go Go for it diana no 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 i think tamara was was first in line she already started oh i was i was just gonna say the students being allowed to work more than 20 hours a week. I hate that. 
I I think it's going to put because they because it doesn't impact everybody. It just impacts a certain subset of students, but that's not clear to everybody. So many people are going to be offside Mm. because of that. Um, And people are going to stop studying full time. They're going to lose their eligibility for postgraduate work permit. I hate this program. This policy change is, is awful. I hadn't thought about students, but basically everything they've done to students, I hate. Um, (laughs) Everything. Like they have basically made everything so unclear. It feels like all the policies were developed to obfuscate. obfuscate. And I've had more students contacting me with accidental loss of status, accidental inability or um, incorrect refusal of post-graduation work permits where then all of a sudden they're in a federal court judicial review process with no money and all of this stuff. But it's been a fiasco. So I 100% agree not, I mean, I'm not one of those who doesn't agree that they should be given the opportunity to work full time. I understand that there's a lot of negative feedback about that. I think, you know, um, I, I understand why, but for me, I'm I'm going to stay neutral on that. It's just, as you've said, Tamara, it's about the fact that nobody's going to be able to distinguish who it applies to, who it doesn't, and it's going to cause a massive host of problems. Uh, These fine line distinctions like this are too, I need to read the policy 30 times and it's what I do for a living. And so the idea that somebody who's just come to Canada and is doing this program is going to supposed to be be able to distinguish these nuances of when they applied and who it applies to, it's, it's, it's absurd. And are they still on status? It's 90 days. They have a valid study permit, but it's not actually valid because they got the letter confirming they met the requirement. Like, how is anybody who's not a lawyer and reading every part of the website supposed to understand that? Yeah. And we even debate them amongst our firm is, does this one qualify? Does this one not? (laughs) Like, there are always those questions where it's like, but she was pregnant and took a leave. And then, you know, like, well, what do you know? I don't know. But did the school approve it? And that's a big one for me is like the uncertainty Uncertainty over the lack of a, or the uncertainty over what actively pursuing studies means, and totally. there seems to be a conflation among some officers between not doing great at school and not actively pursuing studies. Yeah, and I don't know what the line is because the department doesn't have any guidance on it. But you meet people who have been told that you know you weren't actively pursuing their studies, and it's like, well, they failed, but they didn't get incomplete. It's like they're just they're struggling. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of that during the pandemic too. Mm-hmm. People really uncertain, very stressed about family left overseas. And then they started to suffer academically. And all of a sudden they're being told they can't get a post-grad work permit. And the effects are truly devastating for people. Yeah. The other one I had was, and it's more a continuation, but the use of arbitrary language tests to refuse work permit applications on the mm-hmm. basis that they have insufficient language when it just seems to be completely arbitrary with no guidance beyond this IELTS ban says modest. Therefore, a modest user might not be able to do this. Um, And the federal court, for the most part, has been very deferential to it. Uh, But I think it's the most arbitrary thing I find. Yeah. 
I, I have so many here that it's, I'm going to have to like, you know, button it down, but I would say um, I'm going to stick it with two. And the two that I'm going to talk about are very briefly are the misrepresent, the proliferation of misrepresentation jurisprudence. And I don't even mean jurisprudence. I just mean the use of misrepresentation and what I consider to be like just ridiculous circumstances. Um, and um, the second one is just about and we've talked about this on the podcast a whole bunch, which is just about trying to get approvals at various visa offices and just how it's become almost impossible to get visa office approvals um, from certain offices, you know, without going without going through the judicial review process, often twice. And so, um, so I've spoken about the second issue numerous times. We've done numerous podcasts on this, and um, I'm sure we'll talk about this with Raj again on uh, on a on a subsequent podcast. But you know, it's it's at the point now when somebody says, "This is my country of citizenship, and I'd like to apply for a study permit." I just brief them. Okay, doesn't matter how much money you have, how much international travel you've done, how many assets you have. I'm going to counsel you that in all likelihood, you're going to need to get a refusal, go to federal court, get it sent back, maybe get it redetermined and refused on another vexatious ground. So I feel like there is a significant and growing problem with racialization of decision making at the at the visa offices abroad. I'm just going to say that. The one about misrepresentation is, yes, I understand that misrepresentation is something that the that the department has a mandate to prevent, but it's come to the point now that the types of situations where they're claiming misrepresentation are petty and absurd. Um, and so like I actually had to go to a hearing where they said that the fact that somebody had not disclosed an ETA refusal was a misrepresentation. They had they had acknowledged that they were refused the work permit and provided all of the facts as to why they were refused the work permit, but they didn't also mention that they were refused the ETA and that they pursued to the very end of an IAD hearing a misrepresentation allegation. And again, like this is just silly. They had all of the facts, the facts were fully disclosed. And so, you know, this is just a waste of resources. Um, I've already talked about the, the cessation, vacation proceedings. The fact that the department is spending tax money to take protected person status away from Syrian women because of situations like, oh, the the spouse that they thought was deceased turned out not to be deceased. And now they're going to try and take away that status. These are the types of things that like, why are we spending the, the taxpayers money to pursue these types of this, this type of litigation? Um, it, it finds, it fills me full of distress as is evident from my tone of voice. But anyways, that's my little rant. I had a, a consultant showed me yesterday, the most novel misrepresentation case I think I've ever seen, which was someone applied for some sort of a temporary residence document. They then, for whatever reason, I think they thought that they paid the incorrect fee, requested a refund. They got the refund. And then they got nailed for misrep with a procedural fairness letter of why did you get, why did you request a refund and try to get a document that you weren't going to pay for? And they nailed them for misrep. Oh, you're kidding. I like, I was thinking the other day that, you know, every once in a while, I kind of like to go on a Twitter campaign of, things that annoy me with IRCC. And 
one thing that really bothers me because IRCC knows that this is an issue are all the background questions and how they're worded. And the the way they are worded forces people into a situation where they don't understand. Not only have they never read the questions, because I have to say the vast majority of applicants I speak to have literally never read the questions. Um, Even if they did read them, they're compound questions and they're complicated, especially if you're not a native English speaker. But even if you are, Mm -hmm. I I, I find that so frustrating because they nail so many people on misrep for those questions. And IRCC is the source of those poorly written questions. Yeah, exactly. Like, have you ever had a medical condition that you Mm. require treatment other than medication? What does that mean? What does that mean? And yeah, I mean, we could go on here for a long time, but yeah, we're we're all aligned here for sure. I, I've now developed a growing area um, of a, a growing number of clients that consult with me on a regular basis because of their anxiety over the fact that they may have misrepresented. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a real lack of being in touch with real world uh, impacts of this mis- misrepresentation um, legislation that I think people are going around uh, fearing that no matter what their best intentions are, they are going to be found to have misrepresented in spite of every effort that they've made. And I, I want to say one other thing about the campaign that you do, um, Tamara, because I think that the way that this could end up, and you see this on the the most recent citizenship grant application, that they have just started making their questions way broader. And you'll see like now they say, please tell us about any immigrant or citizenship status you have ever had in any country. And so I think that that's what they think is the solve. No, so that question is actually poorly written and, and I've spoken to IRCC about it it's not supposed to be that broad and it's a it's a mistake it's not supposed to encompass visitor status um but it has it, those options in the drop down uh, menu oh i know and I've, <laughs> I've told them and they will in theory at some point fix it they know it's a mistake it doesn't like the online applications are supposed to mirror the paper applications just this is one of many no, many the examples paper application now says this too yeah, no, the paper application always said it. Okay. It was it was just it's not in the instruction guide and it's a mistake. It's not supposed to be in there. Okay. Yeah, okay. So that's good to hear that they're not just going to decide to make it more user friendly by just asking people for absolutely every piece of information. Well, no, because in the citizenship when it's like your status for life in any country that you've ever like so every trip to the United States where you were a visit, like you're supposed to put that every single trip for your entire life you're supposed to put in those visitor status like that's insane. Yeah, 100%. I always come back when thinking about misrep and I've talked about it before that um, CLE that I did where I presented with DOJ and half the audience was DOJ, half were private bar. And the question was, if you ever drove drunk or you think you may have driven drunk at any point in your life, but you were never caught when you drive up to the port of entry. And if the border officer doesn't have to ask you a question, are you supposed to, you know, burst out Oh, 13 years ago, I may have driven drunk on a rural road, but I don't remember uh, anything beyond that. And half the room thought it would be misrepresentation to not say that, and half thought it would be. What about if you drank underage? Well, the fake ID when you're an undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or when I uh, 
like, and I've given this example too. And I was driving at a rural crossing, trying to go to the U.S. And I was driving up and the border officer said, oh, do you have like any wood, any agriculture stuff? And I said, uh, yeah, actually we've got camping wood in the back seat. And he said, okay, well, before you enter, we can't let you in yet. Just go throw the wood out over there and then drive through. Did that count as a denial of entry to the U.S.? And it's just these uncertainties yeah. in leading yeah. to misrep is, yeah, it's very frustrating. I can't imagine what the queue would be like at Peace Arch if everyone had to disclose <laughs> every offense that they may have committed in the past. Yeah. Oh, I sold something on uh, Craigslist. I don't know if I needed to register for tax permit. Like I, yeah. I sold a car seat. I, I think that may be illegal. I'm not sure. Like maybe. I didn't have the license. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I smoked marijuana before it became legal in the jurisdiction. I bought it, you know, like anyone who had used, uh, um, you know, what has since become a, a legal drug in Canada, but did so before. Yeah. Um, and I mean, people might be listening going, well, of course, that's not a crime. But the jurisprudence is misrep is like, you're not supposed matter. to decide that you're no. supposed to let the officer decide you're just 100%. supposed to present all the facts to not foreclose 100%. an avenue of inquiry. N- not a crime where I was, but it is a crime where you are. Yeah. But I didn't know it was a crime where you are. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, the, the standard is extremely low. And again, when you are litigating these matters, I can assure you the department says, how hard would it have been to just disclose these facts and leave it for the decision maker to make an to make a decision? Well, it's pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. So most uh, significant or favorite federal court of uh, Canada decision? So, like, I don't know. There's so many, obviously, there's so many cases, but one yeah, case. Record recent... year for number of cases. Really? Yeah. What? So one case I did like, and it's a very recent case, so that's probably why it was top of mind, is uh, Corvey Canada, um, where they said that the, that the officer had to consider the web form if it was submitted before the decision mm. was made on the application, because I think that case has really wide ranging implications because IRCC is not looking at the web form and we know that they're denying people's applications left, right and center because they haven't been looking at the web forms and they're not receiving the web forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I've used that numerous times um, already. I find it very annoying with the web forms that there's a six hour lag often between when you submit the web form and when you get the like auto, basically it's an auto reply, but much delayed. And it then depends you have to remember which web like form you check. use. Yeah, yeah the visas you... office specific ones are usually fast, but the general inside Canada can often take as long as a day. No, the oh. new web form version gives you an auto response as soon as you submit it. But then okay. the, that that like real that real auto response with more detail that that takes a while. And then the the real real response with we have nothing to tell you that takes months. <laughs> yeah, I find even the auto one that's still like it's not auto. It's even if it's within the within the hour, you have to remember like okay, did I hit submit? Like where where is this thing? And then you have to yeah. remember to save everything because often like, you know, there we've had judicial reviews where there's disputes over whether a document was uploaded. They have to PDF like every page because there's no, I don't think the auto reply says what was uploaded um, and you have to just keep a record on the submitter's end. 
No, and I had a file where IRCC couldn't find the web forms. I'd submitted several web forms and they could only see like two of maybe six web forms I'd submitted. No, interesting. I have a mandamus now where in the CTR, it has all of uh, like the web forms that the applicant submitted and none of IRCC's responses. So I don't know if those are saved separate or, and I mean, it's like, there's no dispute that IRCC sent some sort of a response. Um, but yeah, I don't know how they like sort it all internally on their end. And there's so many that they get, it's inevitable that there's going to be ones that aren't added to files. Like, you know, I've tweeted the stats before. I think you have as well, like the number of web form inquiries, the number of emails, like it's impossible. Like it's, it's impossible, I think, to, for them to actually allocate every single one to a file. It, it literally is impossible. Just like they can't answer all the phone calls they receive. They just don't have the manpower. They've been trying to hire for ages. Even if they hired all the manpower they want to hire, they still couldn't address all the web forms. But yeah. this and is to me the most important piece of information that I've heard in a long time. And it came off of uh, Steve's Twitter was about the fact that their intention is to reduce the officer complement going into 2023. And so that to me sets sends kind of chilling shockwaves into uh, into what we can expect in the new year. And I know I'm sort of jumping ahead to the prediction section of this, but but Steve, when you sent that that out on Twitter, uh, it really it really did say to me, and your comment on it was exactly on point, which is, this to me signals that there's going to be increasing reliance on AI and on other auto reply and automated tools to respond as opposed to human resources. And that to me is going further down the pathway that we said was one of our least favorite developments for the department in the past year. But there are changes they could make to their system that would automate like if you could upload additional documents to an application well then they wouldn't need a person to figure out that that document had to go to that application it would just appear with the documents for the application 100 yeah, i don't understand absolutely. why they don't have that because it does seem so obvious it seems so right. obvious and i think that they my guess is that they will cite privacy security concerns for the same reason that, you know, in some of the portals, but not all of them, there still is an issue that some of the forms you can complete as an online form and some of them you're still uploading a status document and some of the portals you can upload and then view it and some of them you still can't, you know, and it's, so. It's just how the portals are being built and how they're being released. But I think like the, the final end vision is that we will be able to do this. We will be able to add documents. We will be able to see all, all the forms will be online. Like, I think that's where they're going. It's just, they're ruling it out in stages. And um, which is, which takes us back to like a, another least favorite thing, which Steve mentioned earlier, that it's mandatory that you submit these applications online, the PR applications at least, and the TR applications. And they're, it's just a minimum viable product. And, I think it was wrong to make it mandatory. Yeah. yeah, a minimum viable product. That's a really good explanation for what it is. In terms of the issues with the portals, and I know we we could use an entire podcast for this, but um, you know, in terms of you know just the inability 
to, um, as you said, originally, um, Tamara, the inability to actually upload the documents directly back to the application is a major issue. Um, sometimes you can do that when they've specifically asked for it and you were able to link it. But mm -hmm. I found a lot of cases where you can link it, but still there's no slot to upload the document that they have requested from you. So yeah, a, a um, recommendation I made was that they they leave on every application a certain amount of empty slots just available for applicants. For sure. And if they yeah. did that, well... There's no reason why not to do that, that it just, it seems really, it seems like such an obvious fix. They also have, you know, I mean, they can refuse on insufficient evidence and make it that you have to do a separate web form inquiry if you're going beyond whatever it is, two or three megabytes of documents per inquiry. And like, we sometimes do, you know, additional subs where it's like, this is case specific inquiry one of seven. I know. And like, this Those is case specific inquiry two of seven. There are some um, nights where I think if I didn't have to spend how if our staff didn't have to spend hours reducing the size <laughs> of documents, how much more efficient would our practice be? And I understand that they're worried about file size, but when you think about what happens for clients that are trying to present their own applications that don't have all the fancy software that we do, it is an access to justice issue. Mm -hmm. People, the onus is on them to present their case. And when the limitation on file size prevents them from being able to do that, it's a problem. It's a procedural fairness issue. It's not just a, yes, we have file storage concerns over at IRCC. It's got to be dealt with in a more comprehensive way. Yeah. Do you have a favorite federal court decision? Um, I think I have to say the Tefreshi case that we talked about, just because it goes to that issue. We did a podcast on it. This is the one Pantea Jafari's um, case. I have so many of them. So I've just kind of, I've just fallen over and I'm going to choose that one. Yeah. But because it talks about this notion of legitimate. You want to summarize it though, for those who. Uh... Yeah, the part of it that, that I'm going to the part of it that I'm going to summarize is that it was a case involving um self-employed applications that were made by um Iranian citizens um and um a decision was made to transfer the bulk of Iranian applications to Warsaw for processing. And the part of this that stands out to me was that once they were transferred from one visa office to the other, the new visa office dealt with them in a different way than what had been the way that the other applications had been dealt with in the past through the visa office in Ankara. And in that situation, the court found that the procedure that had been employed in many years in the past created a legitimate expectation and that that gave rise to procedural rights. Uh, and I might not be saying that in the exact legal, correct legal manner, but um, I think that the reason that I feel like the case is important. The way that I've summarized it sounds quite dry, but I feel like it's the case that get that gets closest to the issue of prejudicial decision making that impacts a particular community of applicants. This isn't something that is like 
everybody is going to be impacted in this way, but they've selected the Iranian applicants and they've sent those. And all of a sudden, it seems like this is kind of what I've been seeing is that like all of a sudden less preferential processing criteria are being applied and it causes like a huge swath of refusals across one specific demographic community. And so I feel like it's a very creative litigation, the way that um, Pantea Jafari ran this uh, mm-hmm. through case managed litigation and was like, no, 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 let's call this what it was. They have given special uh, re- treatment to this particular group of applicants and it caused a prejudicial impact on them and found a creative way of going about this. So to me, this is just like, this is the type of uh, litigation we should aspire to in trying to combat what I'm describing as really systemic discrimination. And they I know that I these are very fiery words that I'm using, but um, based on what I'm seeing in practice, I feel like we do need to take a very innovative and different approach to what's happening. Yeah. Mine snuck in at the end of the year, Jandu. Um, we're going to do a whole podcast on it in February with the uh, lawyers who were involved, um, one of whom was a past guest on the podcast, Rafina Rashid. But it was a misrepresentation case in which Uh, a group actually of truck driver applicants were asked to provide from their prospective employer. Oh yeah. This was a description of business, the registration, the employer's unaudited financial statements, notice of assessments for three years, org charts, copies of their prospective employers, sales accounts, copies of their supplier accounts, including their purchase contracts, you know, all the type of stuff that you want to, you know, when you're applying for a job and you go in for your first interview, you ask your uh, potential employer to provide. Exactly. And Justice Diner, like if I could summarize how, you know, when he ruled it unreasonable, the ratio was basically WTF. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on much. the basis, like it's, you know, it, it can't, but I just liked it that um, I, 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 and I've done JRs. They luckily they settled. But or they they had settled, but of where similar questions were asked, and it's just like, what potential employee is ever going to get access to these documents? I get these for caregivers all the time, like where caregivers are questioned about why the employer thinks that they need a caregiver for a child of this age, and why can't the older sibling provide care for the younger sibling? You know, like how a caregiver who's never met the family in person is supposed to rule uh, or just supposed to render a an opinion. The only thing I would, anyways, we'll get into that case um, in our in that separate <laughs> podcast. Um, I was a little disappointed that he didn't find it a procedural fairness issue, but um, because, uh, well, uh, anyways, we'll we'll have a conversation about that. But I agree that was a brilliant one. Yeah, uh, I'm just looking at the clock. Let's go through our predictions for 2023. Uh, what should everyone be watching for this year? Let's hear it. Uh, well, we, we know changes to express entry are coming in the spring. Do you want to go into those? Or... Pardon? Yeah, we want to define for those who don't know what the uh, the changes are. Well, so what we anticipate based on, uh, I think, Bill 19, C-19, um, is there's going to be NOC-specific draws, probably location-specific draws. There may be a reweighing of the CRS points, possibly to give more points for Canadian education and Canadian work experience based on the mandate letter. Um, but that remains to be seen. And we don't have any details other than it's coming. Mm-hmm. We're doing mm-hmm. consultations on it now, but 
one I, I might think that they've already decided what they're going to do. I know that's mm-hmm. a bit cynical. No, they but... usually have, I find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had that also. I also had the Mason Supreme Court of Canada decision. We've talked, we were going to do a podcast episode on it, but I think we're waiting for the decision, although we've mm-hmm. talked about it a bit. And that uh, if someone, if there are reasonable grounds to believe that someone's committed an act of violence against a Canadian person, even if they weren't charged, can they be declared inadmissible to life with no HNC on national security grounds? Hmm. Um, I obviously, you know, I think the way I, I described the case kind of shows where I fall on how I want them to rule, but I think that's another big thing to watch for this year. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to take a, a litigation perspective. I think, um, I think we've already seen this enlarging of the enforcement style approach to litigation uh, issues, you know, in terms of misrepresentation, criminality. I think that this is all peaking around cessation, vacation proceedings, um, all of that. Uh, On the bright side, though, I am continuing to watch the RPD and, in fact, all the divisions, um, uh, like including the, the RAD as well, for much more careful and considered uh, approach to their litigation management. Uh, I was at a CLE a couple of weeks ago, and the initiatives that they're describing in Western region for the RPD, RAD is national, so um, hopefully we'll start seeing that integrated at a national national level, but more, um, not just the the trauma-informed decision-making process, but also a more... Um, more, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, trying to uh, resolve things. Um, and I guess this doesn't actually, this isn't actually confined to the RPD and the RAD, but also to the immigration division, the immigration appeal division as well, trying to reach negotiated solutions, more efficient hearing of, of matters. Um, so I just, I find that those procedures um, at, for the most part in Western region, which is what I'm, I'm most qualified to speak about, are becoming more um, sort of set, more um, flexible, more scalable, where, um, you know, they've sort of the, the use of um, our, um, alternative dispute resolution has sort of faded away as they started scheduling hearings more quickly here in Western region. But I think now the idea of having case case meetings and that sort of thing to try and reach resolutions at an earlier stage that seems to be coming back in. And so I I welcome all of those changes. I think that I'll be watching that all very closely. What's something you think will happen that uh, you haven't really seen announced elsewhere or you're not a a contrarian thing or what what you think will happen this year that uh, people might not be expecting? Uh... I think we're going to see um, an expansion of the RNIP to more communities. I think more provinces are pushing for that, especially like Newfoundland. The Atlantic provinces are really pushing for um, for more programs for themselves. Um, and hopefully we'll see municipal uh, nominee program. Oh, and municipal nominee. That's a good one. If, hmm, if I was to dream, maybe a program 
um, for TRVs for the spouses and children awaiting sponsorship and and really dream big, maybe a work permit program. But that's just <laughs> dreaming. That's yeah, that's God. dreaming. Yeah, I hope so. You're municipal right. nominee was an election promise. Are you saying that it's uh, an unexpected thing because oh my gosh, an election promise is going to be fulfilled? It would be incredibly honest. <laughs> Oh, I've been talking about municipal nominee for years. Yeah. Speaking of nominees, did you see that uh, there was like a stealth edit? Or when they created all these new exemption codes, the um, provincial nominee entrepreneurs now need to show significant benefit as well as just a uh, work permit support letter from a province, um, which is almost like a big clawback, in my opinion, of those programs. I. Anyways, this is not my area of expertise, except that I'm dealing with some of these in litigation, but I feel like there's some confusion around the policy here and whether or not this is actually um, just a matter of how you've how you've coded it when you've done your compliance filing versus um, whether or not it's actually a requirement to satisfy both. But I feel like... I think that for cases, and I've got cases also like probably similar to what you're talking about. I think the change around December 15 or 16 kind of fundamentally alters um, this going forward. Like they kind of resolved that uncertainty and they created a whole new exemption code um, along with like 50 other exemption codes. I I feel like there's something sneaky around this. I have a conspiracy theory about this change. I feel like it's yet another one that goes back to the Tefreshi case where it's sort of like, this is another change that is going to catch a lot of people blind because it's a way of them dealing with a backlog of cases. And so they're going to change the code and people might not be wise to it. And all of a sudden they'll be refused on some new ground. I think that that's what's happening. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little confused and curious about what that's all about because um, anyways, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. What's your uh, unexpected thing? something's going to happen to the caregiver programming. I don't know what yet, but I have been predicting for years that they're just not going to renew the pilot. Um, Remember the pilot. Okay. So we've now had two subsequent pilot programs. We went from the caregiver program to the high medical needs and caring for children class. And then before that program sunsetted, they canceled it before it was done and they replaced it with another five-year pilot. That's the one that exists now. And that one was 2019. So it's supposed to sunset in 2014. I'm not sure they're going to let it live out its final days. Um, But I feel like I don't know whether or not they're just going to let it die and then there'll be nothing left. Um, Or just this, this whole program has been tortured and convoluted from the beginning. Uh, I have now started to see maybe three or four approvals since the program began in 2019, which is just ludicrous because I filed probably more than most people in the country and that I've got like a couple of people that have now obtained work permits through this program is really scandalous to me. Have you gotten requests along the lines of like in the home support worker program, please confirm if you still have a need which yep. is basically a weird way of saying like it took it's taken us so long to process this we just want to know if the person's still alive 
yeah, we want to know if they're still alive. And if they don't have a job anymore, then we're going to say, you know, and they've done this before. They used to do this on LMIA based work permits. And um, what they would sometimes do is they would let them arrive and then find them inadmissible for misrepresentation, or they would catch them, you know, and say, you have 30 days to tell us whether or not you still have a job offer. Oh, you don't have a job offer. Okay. Well then your application is no longer valid. So um, again, people that have been waiting three years and through no fault of their own have not reached a decision, but it's sort of the irony of trying to tell somebody, even though remember in this program, you're coming. And when you come, you're supposed to get a non-employer specific work permit. Yeah. However, you needed a job offer. So it's insane because now <laughs> if that job offer has gone away, they might actually say, well, you cannot come in on this program and get your open permit, which to me yeah. is just like absurd to the max. So, um, so, so I, yeah. I, I don't think we can let something be your prediction. I think we need something <laughs> concrete. Like all instead right, of right, just right. something's going to happen, like we need a we need an actual prediction. Okay. Um, I'm <laughs> going to, I'm going to predict that they, oh God, Steve, this is hard. Can we do something, do the next one and then- Well, I'll do mine. So mine's a lot more subtle. I think they're going to lift the revisa requirement um, for a bunch more South American countries, including Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Central America, and probably other countries as well. I say that just because I saw that there was a redact, very redacted memo to the minister saying they're continuing- they are considering expanding the ETA plus program that's available for Brazil. And so I think they're going to do it. And most of South America uh, will become ETA plus or visa exempt. But the, the way they have it organized for Brazil is so ridiculous because nobody understands that they can't apply for the work permit at the border. <laughs> yeah. Because that... there's one country on the list. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I, yeah, that that's always been odd. So did you figure what the something is? Yeah, I think they're going to cancel it. And that's it. They're Existing applications or just nope. the program? They're just the program. I think they're not going to replace it. And the reason I say that is because remember how, you know, part of this whole program is that they made it so you could not apply for an LMIA based work permit from outside of the country. And then there was like a little window of opportunity where if you were already here as a visitor, you could do a visitor to worker. And so that, and then they closed that one down too. Yeah. It's like, they just seem to kind of think that, you know, I think that they might create, like if you're here and you're doing the work, they might allow you to transition. If you're, let's say, getting the work experience on an open permit or something like that. But I think that the the opening for, for overseas applicants might be just closed. Or they might, give the provinces a larger allocation and say some of that allocation has to go to caregivers. If you think that that's where you want to yeah. use your allocation. Or they'll say that yeah, $10 a day daycare. Um, yeah. And then I don't know what they would say for the home support program. Since yeah. we're on this topic of like unpopularish programs or seemingly unpopularish programs with the department, let's jump to uh, predictions on... Self-employed class oh. or of visa? <laughs> I thought you were going to PGP. Uh, Those well, at least get processed. They, like they, they have to, they have to, if they want to keep up with their levels, they have to land, I think, two to 4,000 this year and three to 7,000 next year. So 
in their oh, planning, they're budgeting yeah. for it. They could just, uh, I mean, I don't think they landed those in previous years and they still made their levels. They could just get them from other categories. Like, do you see these programs, I mean, pro applications being processed, whether the programs are going to be closed or capped? Like, it just seems that there's very little interest from the department to process these applications. I agree as well. I think like startup visa is good in theory, but the way they've rolled it out is just awful. And self-employed class, who actually falls under it anymore? Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, I think there are people uh, like who presumably qualify and apply. I'm just looking at the current processing time. I, I just I've only dealt with these in cases months. that have been refused and that now have asked me to litigate those refusals. And I'm seeing applications that appear to meet all of the criteria and that are being refused on what I consider to be spurious grounds. And then we litigate and they go back to the visa office. And many times they get refused on other what I consider to be spurious grounds. So it's sort of like, again, I imagine like I don't know this from the ground level in terms of like the processing side of things but it does seem to me that there is uh there is the tone that they don't wish to process these and so yeah uh, they're looking for any reason to refuse them so I take my cues from that there was some funny, funny stuff in in one of Richard Carlin's Lex bases, like some internal emails about the startup visas and uh, yeah, it's a yeah. great program for people who are here who are self employed because uh, that doesn't count towards Canadian experience class. Um, and but yeah, it's uh, I, they seem to have very little appetite, so it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, if they process maybe the existing ones, I can't imagine. I don't know what the backlog is. Yeah, um, I think that they but... just don't know how. To, and I think that we do need to admit that there is a lot of sketchiness that goes on in some of these programs. And I think that the department is just unable to discern the legitimate application from the non-legitimate application. So they paint them all with the same brush and mm -hmm. they just don't know how to deal with it. So maybe it's a matter of just saying for an in-Canada application, they feel more within their depth, but the visa offices just, they, they're not equipped in my view. And so they resort to stereotyping and uh, drawing bold conclusions that are often not based on evidence. So you think either of these programs closed or suspended and in, intake suspended in 2023? I feel really ill-equipped to answer because I don't ever deal with them except when they're refused. But from the tone that I'm getting from mm -hmm. the visa office, that would not in any way surprise me, at least to outside Canada applicants. They seem to have a strong distaste for these applications. Yeah, I think there'll be a suspension in both and they'll say that they're going to, they're there, they won't close it but they'll say they're going to focus on the queue and in the meantime pause intake i just remember many years ago when i was sitting in one of these cba meetings with like policymakers at ircc and them saying that like you know one of the senior policy people just saying i've got to be honest we are not that good at assessing entrepreneurial skill like we're just not that good at it you know and so that was kind of the thinking about bringing in these angel investor groups and these you know incubators to try and outsource that but i think that i think in their 
view, perhaps, that hasn't insulated them against some of the, the concerns that they had about, about um, illegitimate applications and corruption and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like they're just eventually just going to be like, this is too complicated for us. Yeah. Well, there's also, there's just, there's no good real entrepreneur program, at least federally. Yeah. I think that they might just, again, sort of like what Tamara said about the, um, Tamara said about that. I can't get the pronunciation <laughs> about the, um, about the, the caregiver program. They might just shove it over to the provinces and say, you deal. Yeah. IRCC processing times for express entry back to a six month standard. I've had applications processed in like two, three months lately. So I think so. Do you think that's an end of year uh, push for quota? Followed I had by one approved yesterday. No. Approved yesterday, submitted beginning of October. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I noticed the year end push, it seemed, and I always wonder. I think they'll also get it back to six months. But I do think any application that is not easy to approve will go down a bit of a black hole. I think anything, like I, I think anything that the officer does not want to look at is going to go to one of those officers that quit six years ago and uh, and sit in their account. Yeah, that's amazing. I think they have like it's an inevitability of having these larger targets, especially if there's less people that you have to process on like you know, the easy in, easy out files. Yeah, which means poor Department of Justice is going to continue to be inundated by mandamus litigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the federal court seems pretty strained in terms of the number of uh, judicial reviews they're getting. Yeah. And uh, parent and grandparent program, lottery, first come, first serve, nothing. I think lottery, I think it's definitely going to happen. I think... Uh, they're going to have to open up a new expression of interest this year. Like people are, people are going to explode <laughs> if they keep drawing on that old one. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I don't think it's going to be huge, but I agree that I'm, I'm guessing it will open and I'm guessing that it will be a lottery. I'm so but surprised they love... don't do a weighted lottery or something like that. It's been recommended to them like multiple times. So I would love to see a weighted lottery. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I just hope that the weight is not all financially based because I think that sometimes those with the greatest need uh, are sometimes not those with the greatest resources. You know, the ones that actually need the grandparents to care for the kids. Oh no, I mean, so uh, they... I mean, weight in terms of kind of like how they do it with hunting in BC. Like if you've failed in the lottery before your chances go up in future ah, love it love it yeah yes. i know there's other ways that they could do the weighted lottery but that, that's i'm afraid they'll go I'm financial they'll go to financial weight and that to me would be a real mistake because that would again privilege those who probably have other options or that could live here on super visas and pay privately for health coverage but the ones that actually require the family reunification or who are likely to live in a family kind of environment where you know grandma and grandpa actually live in the house and become part of the family unit uh those are the ones that i think suffer the most when the program doesn't exist yeah no No. that's uh unless there's any dark horse or unexpected other or like unprepared question other prediction the only other thing we haven't talked about at all, and maybe just a quick one, is citizenship, you know, citizenship processing and uh, 
you know, why does it take so long? And is that going to change? And is that going to change? Like, yeah. So I have a prediction. Yeah, that's my prediction is that citizenship and PR cards are going to become mandatory this year. This is a prediction. It is not based on any outside knowledge. It is just a prediction. Um, but mandatory. And what do you mean by mandatory? Like, like they've made the PR applications mandatory. I think they're going to make the citizenship portal mandatory. A portal. I okay. See. Yeah. yeah you you must like, be a citizen. Must be yeah. a citizen. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think they're going to move it online so that again, that there's going to be a streamlining. Maybe um, they can reduce some of the backlog. Maybe they can bring down processing times. If they do that, maybe they can introduce some AI because citizenship, like there's, I think the vast majority of them are a lot more cut and dry. You, you were here, you met the residency requirements, you meet the requirements. Okay. Yeah, for well, sure. Well, you think it could be proactive now that they're monitoring, like they track entries and exits. You'd think there'd almost be a system that's just like, hey, you know, big brother's been watching you. We know that you meet the requirements for citizenship. Want it? Like... That would be the, the left hand and the right hand talking to each other. <laughs> no, that's never going to happen. But at the very least, um, having an application without these fundamental glitches built in that we've already discussed about like tell us every place you've ever been since the day you were born um stuff um a streamlined application um you know that makes it easier for people to do and then i think that this is one of those places where automation actually might work super well because they should be so straightforward and they're just not and even the sharing like if they could if you log in where they could share their the information that they have so that they're not testing you against your own knowledge of your ins and outs uh, well like they're telling the people US to stop requesting online exactly why so, can't we? I don't know, honestly. And they are telling people, do not request your traveler history because it causes backlogs. But then we're going to use it to find you that you've you've not yeah. carefully represented your traveler history, which is absurd. The so, Americans, you can view it online. Yeah, that's like exactly what she's for... saying. And uh, and it's so helpful. But, um, but yeah, it's really, uh, that could be fixed up. And I think on the PR card renewal, which is just, I mean, it's related to um, those, the, the disparities between the PR card and the citizenship and the PR travel document, like those should all be aligned, those three applications. Like one of them asks for your days inside of Canada and one asks for your days outside of Canada. I know that sounds petty, but when you're trying to prepare both, like it's a whole extra why is there work. a card oh god like why is an eta good enough for a visitor i don't know steve it's and a, a permanent resident question. needs a card when it's the purpose of the pr card at least from immigration is really just to get on the plane like i don't I even understand why question. they need a printed card i love that question like yeah i think like and I'm sure that there'll be something about, you know, protection and safety and all this kind of stuff. But um but, but if what they have a passport. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's good enough for the ETA. Like, I really don't, I don't understand why there needs and to be a printed card. And for the foilist visa. So if we can, if we can do the foilist visa, why can't everybody have that paperless doc? Like, it just makes I no sense. Yeah, it's so smart. It's so, so smart. And then the whole thing about the delay between being granted and getting the card issued and all this kind of stuff. And also it would, I mean, because I don't know, I'm getting a lot of trouble with people trying to renew their cards when they have complied with the residency obligation by reason of residing outside of Canada with the Canadian spouse. Um, that's a whole other 
another problem. And I think that the idea of having a paperless document, uh, uh, you know, right now they're saying that you cannot apply for that unless you're in, you cannot obtain that unless you're inside of Canada. And I think that that needs to be cleaned up too. Yeah. Again, I, like this is something I, I raised with IRCC that, 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 that doesn't comply with the, the way the form is now written doesn't comply with the law. Agreed. Agreed. But the amount of pushback, I don't know if you're seeing this on your side of the country, but here, even somebody's made a perfectly good application, um, the kinds of encounters that they have when they're trying to pick up their PR card, they're not pleasant. People are being told that they're doing something wrong and illegal in getting a card when they're not residing here permanently. So there's something weird going on in that. But like what, do they want people to submit PRTDs every six months? Like It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. I just don't understand why there's a card. I can't get past yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, no, no. I good. Like, I, I love can't get it. past that like initial like why. Like we yeah, like, you become, congratulations. You're a permanent resident. Please don't travel for the next two months because we need to print a card. Yeah. And mail it to you. We can't have a. I mean, they don't. We have, need to mail uh, it to our closed office, and we'll contact you in six months when you can come to our closed office to get and it. give you ten days to get here, even though you might be living with your Canadian spouse in Singapore. And you're and not if there's a card, a why can't CBSA print them back yeah. in the day? Like I used to work at a gym, you'd print a card. Like, yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, I know. We'll give you 10 days to get here, but it will take you three weeks to get the <laughs> PR travel document. You'll need to show up for your appointment. Yeah. I don't know. Just make it a number that the airlines can input cross-check. Yeah. Well, this has been very fun. I don't think they're going to get rid of PR cards in 2023. I don't, I don't think that's either. going on. Oh, no. I yeah. agree oh, with no. you. We, <laughs> we are agreed that it's what should happen in 23, and we are agreed it will not. Well, that can be 2023, a year of questions. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, thanks for coming on. We'll have to do this next year to see how we did in our predictions. Yeah. Yeah, let's make it a, let's make it a, a bookend. Yeah. I love it. Sounds All great. Right. Well, I really well, enjoyed this. Congrats on starting yeah, your new firm also. Yeah, yeah. What's the name of the firm now? Lighthouse Immigration Law. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, wonderful. Well, congratulations. It's such a big step. And uh, at the end of the year, too, we'll get your your report on how, how first year uh, running your own firm has, uh, has treated you. Yeah. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they uh, find you? At T-T-R-R-M-K. Yeah. And I think you joined Masta, Mastodon as well. Is that? I did. I'm still like, it It was my plan to figure it out, but then I started a new firm. So the plan to figure out Mastodon, I have so many other things now that I have yeah. to figure out. Yeah. Now you have a new child, which is your firm. So <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Good awesome. luck. I'm sure you'll, you'll, uh, you'll knock them dead. It's amazing. Thank you.